Please, you can open up your Bible to Psalm 16. Psalm 16, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one somewhere around you. And this morning's passage can be found on page 453. Also will be on the screen. Um, I just want to add my voice, uh, Trenton's voice. Thank you so much. Um, just over the last seven days, just being able to just celebrate the faithfulness of God with both the, the mission trip uh, to Haiti and uh, them returning and also the Sports Academy. Both of those huge wins for us as a church. So thank you for being who you are. Um, this morning we're going to look at Psalm 16. And I just want to begin by just with this idea that um, really as a society right now, there's a huge emphasis on starting. Right? So on my book, or, or on my desk, there's a book by a man named John Acuff that says, start, right? So if you have an idea for a new business, start, right? If you want to write a book, right, no longer do you have to go through the long and arduous process of finding a publisher. You can self, you can start and self-publish, right? If you would like a new body, right? I mean, you can start an exercise program, but there is a reason, right, that they sell you P90X and not P for the rest of your life X, right? Because, listen, um, it is necessary, and it is a cultural grace, I think, for us um, in this world where there's all this information, and you can be frozen, you know, just with the multitude of choices for people to, to kind of push this message to get things started, right? Because we can just live in idea world. But the, the flip side of that is that there is an underemphasis on finishing well. So biblically speaking, um, there is much more emphasis on finishing well than starting well. And so this morning, we want to talk about what does it mean for us to persevere in a calling, right? What does it mean? Because the truth is that everything that God has called us to do, everything that is worthwhile or of value will be opposed, right? You will face circumstances that absolutely knock you down and take your breath away. So how do we not just start things well, but finish well. How do we persevere in the nation of Haiti and helping with nation building? How do we persevere with the Fellowship Sports Academy and seeing it flourish here? But how do we take it to, to parts of our city that lack hope, right? How do we persevere in the things that God has called us to do? How do you persevere as a friend? How do you persevere as a spouse? How do you persevere as a parent? All of these things take a shift in our perspective. Because listen, if we just look at our circumstances and the things that we're going through, right, we'll be paralyzed with fear, with doubt, with insecurity. But what we're going to learn this morning as we look at Psalm 16 is that God wants to give us a perspective of himself that transcends our circumstances. Like we need a vision of God that's bigger than what we're actually going through so that we can persevere. And that's exactly what we're going to come into contact with as we look at Psalm 16. So if you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me as I read Psalm 16 verses 1 through 11. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. 
I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray that that right now you would help us to listen, not just merely turn our attention to words on a page, but that we would encounter a living relational being that has loved us from the foundation of the world. I pray that you would meet us in our circumstances, and I pray that you would give us a vision of you that's bigger than our circumstances. I pray that you would particularly minister to those that are in circumstances they cannot explain. I pray that you would build into us a passion to pray and to know you as you are. Lord, and the result would be fullness of joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to kind of look at Psalm 16 this morning, try to learn some lessons on prayer. And the truth be told, um, I have met people in my life that actually enjoy praying, but I don't think I've ever met anyone that says, I'm a good prayer, right? I mean, so I'll just share a little bit of my own journey with you. So I've been a Christian since 1996, and um, there were really two major events in my life that shaped my, both my view and my experience of prayer. The first, first one was the first year that I was a Christian. I was able to take a seminar with this guy, and he basically taught me how to read the Bible, like whether to open up to a psalm or one of the Gospels, a story about Jesus, and to basically just understand the Word as it is, you know, what does it actually mean, and then to turn that back into prayer to God. And honestly, that's my same practice that I use all these years later. Like, God was kind um, in that moment to teach me how to pray. And then fast forward, 2005, um, I met a man named Tim Kerr, who was just a great friend. Uh, He was a Canadian. Uh, We always said, take off, eh? Um, He... (laughs) He was a humble man, so we both were in the same class. I was starting out in ministry. He was kind of getting retooled for ministry. He'd been a pastor for about 15 years. 
And when I met Tim, there, there was something different about the way that he prayed. He wasn't loud. He wasn't boisterous. But there was just this reality that there was a humble confidence in the way that he prayed that he knew that God was listening, that he knew that prayer made a difference. So um, I just made it <laughs> just my pursuit that year. Could we just spend some time together praying? And so we set aside time each and every week so that we could pray together. And that was the kindness of the Lord. And the reason I say all of that is because one of the best ways to learn how to pray is to actually overhear and listen to other people pray, right? Prayer is something that's more caught than it is taught. But this morning, we get to overhear um, just one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture, and we get to learn a lesson from King David. And what King David was an expert at was taking the circumstances of his life, like the real stuff that he was going through, and then laying that over and against the truth of who God is and what he had promised to be both for him and his people. David was an expert at praying both with his mind, he understood things about God, but he also allowed those things to penetrate to the depths of his heart. He was both intellectually honest with God and emotionally honest with God. And that's what you're going to encounter as we look at Psalm 16. And that brings me to my first point. Prayer is anchored in knowing God both truly and personally. Prayer is anchored in knowing God both truly and personally. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord I have no good apart from you. Now, in those first two verses, King David uses three different distinct names of God. Now, it doesn't readily come available to us um, in the English, but the first one is God. Behind that word God is the Hebrew word El, and when you look it up in Hebrew, surprise, surprise, it means God right? Um, but the word El, oftentimes it has something at the end of it, like maybe you've heard the Hebrew word El Shaddai. It means God Almighty. But when the word El is by itself, it is to distinguish God from all of the smaller G-gods of all the other people that are all around. So in essence, what, God, what David is saying is, preserve me, O God of gods. Preserve me, the sovereign and the king of the universe. There is no one that is like you. Second off, in verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. And you'll notice in your scriptures, it's capital L-O-R-D. That is, um, that's representative of the covenant name of God. We sang about it this morning. It is Yahweh. That's the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. It means I am who I am, and I always will be who I am, right? That God himself is the self-existent creator, that he is the measure of all things. He is the one that defines reality. So David is praying to the God of gods. He's praying to the God that has revealed himself, that has promised to be for his people, the God that has been and the God that always will be. 
David was preserved by his knowledge of God. Now, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And that little word, Lord, is Adonai. And it means you are my sovereign. You are my king. You are the Lord of lords. I bow my life. I bow my feelings. I bow my circumstances to you. David was preserved by his knowledge of God. Now, for us, when we think about prayer, oftentimes we think about the difficulty of the request that we bring. I want you to receive encouragement from this quote from Mark Batterson in his book, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. He says, We rank our prayer requests. We have big requests and little requests. We have easy requests and difficult requests. But this is a false construct. The truth is this. To the infinite, all finites are equal. There is no big, small, easy or difficult, possible or impossible when it comes to God. There are no degrees of difficulty. So listen. The reason that David can pray preserve me is because he knows the God that holds everything together. He knows that in God's hand, he holds his life, that he holds the universe, and that he is approaching someone that can meet all of his needs. And I think for us, right, I mean, it's important for us to begin to to try to unlearn some of the things that we've learned about prayer, right? I mean, God doesn't hear us because we make a lot of noise. God doesn't hear us because somehow we've been more pious or more righteous. God hears us because of the finished work of Jesus. And the New Testament teaches us that we have the same access to God that Jesus does because he has opened a way to the Father, right? So we can bring our requests to him. Now, there's a couple of things I think we can learn from this. The first is that we want to make God our study, right? We want to think God's thoughts after him, right? So we live in a culture where learning is not very valued, right? Where most people, and this is not to condemn anyone, doesn't read another book after they graduate from high school, right? That's a sign of brokenness, not a sign of renewal, For us as the people of God to begin to live out a new way of life means that we're going to make God our study, right? He is the basis for knowing anything. And the the knowledge of God is the basis of all reality. It's, It's why there is certainty in mathematics and sciences, right? It's because it's a closed system with a creator. We have a God um, who defines reality, and and we want to approach him with confidence and faith. So we want to make God our study, and I want to just, I mean, if this is totally foreign to you, I mean, I I would recommend picking up a book like Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Um, Jen Wilkin has a new book called No One Like You. Um, Both of those are excellent in just the study of God. What does it mean for God to be self-existent? Why is that important? What does it mean for God not to change? Why does that matter to us? Right? We need to know and understand those things because God is unchanging, right? In our changing circumstances, that gives us hope. We want to understand who God is. And the truth is, right, I've had so many teachers say this over the years. I mean, everyone is a theologian, 
Like, everyone has thoughts about who God is. The only question is, are we going to be good theologians or bad theologians? (laughs) Um, But then the second one, I think, is even more important to us here locally. Theology must be personal, and it must be real. John Mark Comer helps us with this. He says, God is a person. By person, I don't mean he's male or female or human. By person, I mean he's a relational being, not an impersonal energy force or a chapter in a systematic theology textbook or a world religion. He is a relational being who wants to, well, relate to people just like you and me. He wants to know and be known. But knowing God isn't just knowing a bunch of facts about God. He isn't a question on a multiple choice exam that you study so that, to get it right so that you go to heaven when you die. He's a person who wants to be in relationship with you. And there's two letters that makes all the difference in this psalm. He says, you are my Lord, right? My is what moves things from our resources to God's, right? My is the cry of faith. My is what makes theology real and personal, right? I mean, and the truth is, right, bitterness, coldness of heart, doubt, discouragement, all of those things are the result of having thoughts about God in a general way, but not personalize them as your own, right? So, And if you find yourself in the midst of difficulty, the first way forward is to say, the Lord is my Lord. He is my sovereign. He is my king. He is the one that is watching over me. He is the one that loves me. When we call out on my Lord, he becomes the rock of ages that we can hide in, right? So theology can't just be abstract and distant. It also must be personal and real. Which brings me to my next point. God uses prayer to transform our perspective of our current circumstances. So the first thing that God, I mean, that David does, God opens his eyes to the gifts that he has all around him. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land... They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So there's a progression here. David sees God as he is. And then quickly his eyes move off of his own circumstances and his own needs to the gifts that God's given him all around. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. Now, (laughs) There's not a lot of things that I think I have common ground with David on, but I think this one this week, just able to walk around this building this week, able to recount stories of God's faithfulness from Haiti. Like, you may not feel this way about you, but this is God's perspective of you. This is my perspective of you. You are glorious. The Spirit of God lives in Fellowship Jonesboro. And when you come together and you use those gifts, it shows the world 
what and who your treasure is. And it's a privilege just to be able, like the thing that I love the most is like those things didn't have anything to do with me. They're all the activity of God. And so we can corporately thank God for it because it's not about human effort or human invention. It's about God working in a people where we work together and we live out the mission of God. Not because we're awesome, but because he is, right? As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight, right? So if you find yourself in perplexing circumstances, the first thing to do is just look around. Look at the people that God has allowed you to run the race with. If you don't have those people, man, this is a great place to find those people. We would love to help you find relationships that are glorious and sustaining for you. But also his perspective shifts of of what success looks like. Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. All throughout the scriptures, one of the greatest challenges to the people of God is seeing the prosperity of the wicked. Right? That you can open your eyes and you know the difficult circumstances you are going through and you can look over here and there's people that could care less about who God is or what he's done and it seems like their life is going along swimmingly. Right? I mean, and in this moment, God opens up David's eyes to say, listen, it may look like they're successful on the outside, but their future is sorrow, right? Those that run after things that won't truly satisfy them eventually like, will lead to brokenness and despair. And so I don't know if you've ever just sat with someone that just absolutely has no hope, but that's, they're experiencing a little bit of verse 4. Now our mandate is to take the gospel to those folks and we want to see them experience that. But listen, God allows us sometimes to just see behind the curtain man, that there's a little guy there and he's just going to, you know, I mean, that's not, this, is, this world is not all that there is. Success is not what always we think it is. The sorrow of those who run after another God shall multiply. But then he also helps David to see his real treasure. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. There's that word again, capital L-O-R-D. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines or the boundary places of my life or the contours of my story have fallen in pleasant places. How can David say that? How can David say in the midst of difficulty, you are my portion, you are my cup, you are my reward? How can he say that in circumstances that don't make sense? How can we say that in circumstances that don't make sense? And it's because, like, God is gracious enough sometimes to, to open our eyes to what the real treasure is. That he, this is inheritance language, right? That God is our inheritance. 
Like God is our treasure. God is our reward. We don't love God because of the stuff that he can get for us. Like we love God because he's beautiful and he's worthy of all of our praise. He is our cup. He is our portion. And, and that's why like when you have God, right, you can rejoice in circumstances that are not of your choosing. That you can rejoice in circumstances that absolutely stink and don't make sense. C.S. Lewis says this in The Weight of Glory. He says, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. So what he's getting at there is God is our treasure. So this doesn't make us fatalists or robots that just go through the motions, right? This makes us cling with all that we are in the midst of the difficulty to a God that loves us, right? A God that's working things together. New Testament language, Romans 8.31. And if God is for us, who can be against us, right? I mean, we want to believe in the God who is our treasure and our reward. And sometimes, right, if, if we miss that, our circumstances end up dominating what we're going through. And what this psalm is there to tell us, that even in the midst of circumstances that want to dominate our perspective, that God is available to capture our gaze. And when we see him, it changes the way that we experience reality. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the name Corey Ten Boom. Um, she... Um, is the author uh, of her story called The Hiding Place. She, along with her family in the 1940s, would hide. Uh, just because of their Dutch Reformed tradition, they, they felt compelled to care for those that were in need. During the Nazification of their country, they would hide Jews in Corey's bedroom. That was actually the hiding place. They could hide six people at a time. And as all the numbers were added up, um, I believe by the end of the war, they had saved the lives of over 800 people. But during that time, uh, Corey's father and her sister and her were all taken to Nazi concentration camps. Both her father and her sister died, and Corey seemed to be mysteriously released one week before everyone her age was to be put to death. And after the war, um, she would go around and she would tell the story of God's faithfulness and how he met her and how he was using her story. I think, and, and oftentimes when she would tell the story, she'd either be looking down and oftentimes people thought she was just reading her notes, but she actually was doing a needlepoint. So I want to show you. And she, at the end of her talk, she would reveal this needlepoint. And she would show it, and it looks like that, right? And most of the time, people thought that she just showed it to them backwards, right? And she says, oftentimes, when we look at our own stories, that's what we see, right? Knots and mess, disconnected, doesn't make any kind of sense. And then you can show them the other picture. Then she would flip it around, and she says, this is what God sees, right? With the threads of our life, Right? So listen, I, there was this moment this morning. I mean, I'm sitting here and I'm singing, great is your faithfulness. And I'm thinking about all the ways that I've been unfaithful. 
But then I also just have this, these images burned in my head of how he's taken the threads of my life that didn't seem to make sense at the time and how he's connected them all and he's weaved them all together. And I still don't know how they all fit together. I mean, this is, this is in light of eternity, how God is making something beautiful. And I think just Psalm 16 is just this wonderful picture that we can trust him when life doesn't make sense, that he wants to, to fix our eyes on something bigger and better and more satisfying, and that's him himself. And the only way that this makes sense, listen, in the New Testament it says it like this, if this life is all that there is, we are most to be pitied. Right? Life will not always make sense this side of eternity. And that's why we're going to conclude with verses 10 and 11. Prayer shifts our perspective from the temporary to the eternal. Look at verses 10 and 11. The reason that David could have confidence, the reason that you and I can have confidence, verse 10 and 11, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, you might recognize verse 10. That is something that Peter quotes in the first sermon that launches the church, Acts chapter 2. David could see something far off that we can see clearly now. I mean, this is a picture of the Holy One that won't be corrupted is Jesus. The grave could not hold Him. The reason that we can have hope in the midst of all of our circumstances is because we have a God of resurrection, right? The resurrection is meant to be a functional truth for us as the people of God. We have a God that raises the dead. So that means, right, what you're going through right now is not the end of the story. Death is not the end of the story. Decay, depression, darkness, none of those things are the end of the story. We serve a God who raises the dead. And then, not only that, not only is this just this hope of some far-off future hope, which it is, It also is this promise for right here, right now. It says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy, right? This is a primary reason that we gather as the people of God, right? I mean, I know you all have like a friend or a spouse or a parent, like when things go south, like they don't have to say anything. It's their presence just communicates joy and healing and comfort, That's what it's supposed to be like when we come together as the people of God. We come to encounter God's presence and his nearness. Like in the Old Testament, that's that's one of the greatest distinctions of the people of God is, I mean, Moses said, I don't want to go anywhere if your presence doesn't go with us. And honestly, I don't want to gather here if God's presence is not going to be among us. And I I pray that somehow that the the weight and the truth of who God is, is is more real to you now than when you walked in the door. Right? It's in his presence there is fullness of joy. And that doesn't mean right, that, that everything always gets a happy, slappy face on it. It means that, that God is greater than our circumstances. And that, you know, the New Testament says that you can be sorrowful yet rejoicing at the same time because God is your treasure. Right? God wants to meet us with the truth of 
who he is and he offers us this infinite joy that we can draw near to him and he will draw near to us. And then it says that at his right hand, and that means in the Bible, the right hand is just like the picture of strength. So at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Also in the New Testament, who's at God's right hand? It's a picture of Jesus. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father where there is pleasure forevermore, right? Everything that you go through will not always make sense, but this is the promise from God that in his presence there's fullness of joy and there will be pleasures forevermore. That he would, that God for all of eternity will not grow weary of delighting your soul, right? You're not going to be disappointed with God, right? I mean, this life is a mist and a vapor that's soon going to be over. I was reminded of that this week, right? I went to a funeral and that lasts an hour, right? They all last an hour. Like this life will soon be past. The only thing that matters is the God that's created us, the God that loves us, and the God that wants to bring us joy. So I think for us, one of the things that we want to do, I want to read, I'm going to close with this, because I don't think we spur each other on enough with just the promises of God, right? So 1 Thessalonians says this. There's just this hope where we're supposed to encourage one another and long for him to be back and to be the king and to be the sovereign and to swallow up the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of our God. I'm going to read this and I can invite the band to go ahead and join me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And this is our hope. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The promise is that this world is not all that there is that we can live with him and that we can rejoice in the truth of who he is. I'm going to pray and then we're going to celebrate communion. Father, I thank you that you love us and that you gave yourself for us. I thank you that you're greater than the circumstances that we go through. I pray that you will teach us to pray, um, not in accordance with how big our circumstances are, but with how big you are and how much you have given yourself for us and how much you love us. I pray that you help us to celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, there's a couple ways that you can take communion, all right?